imagine being able to scan your foot and then have your 3D printer print insoles for your foot so you have the most comfortable footwear. Or um, let's say you're a left-handed person who has a lot of difficulty finding a left-handed tool. You could easily just go on, print it in your printer in your house so that the left-handed tool is right there for you straight away. These these are the kind of things that I think are exciting from, from an adoption point of view. And fortunately, we'll be driven forwards financially by the automotive and aerospace market and the medical markets really adopting this more and more um, and pouring more and more cash into it. And I think in the long run, us as consumers will be the people that will benefit from it. Hi, M4Edge listeners. Thanks for being curious. This episode is really exciting as it's the first in a series we're releasing on additive manufacturing, also known as 3D printing. In our view, 3D printing ranks up there with artificial intelligence as one of those technologies, meaning one of those that truly holds potential for fundamental changes in how the economy functions. To say that 3D printing just represents a new way of building things is like saying that commercial aviation just represented a new way of getting places. What is it that makes 3D printing so potentially transformative? For starters, in combination with 3D modeling software, it changes the process of designing and engineering parts, not just because prototyping is so easy and there is more freedom of experimentation, but because the design freedom allows the design engineers to be more creative. And it's a lot faster to build a prototype, test it, and then revise the design. You just have to tweak the software and print a new version. 3D printing removes constraints that exist in traditional manufacturing. The traditional machines literally cannot produce some of the objects that can be made using additive manufacturing. So 3D printing lets us make things that we just couldn't produce before. And it lets us redesign existing products to be better in a variety of ways. For instance, new designs and new materials used in those designs already allow car and airplane manufacturers to lightweight their assemblies thereby reducing energy use without sacrificing any strength or safety. What's more is that 3D printing democratizes manufacturing. Sure, people in their homes will not be making industrial-grade products anytime soon, but toys, jewelry, dental fixtures, sneaker insoles, and many, many products can be printed by their end-use customer. As you'll hear from this episode's guest, Ben Redwood of 3D Hubs, The maker movement really catapulted 3D printing to its current place in the economy. And because of the close tie to consumer products, 3D printing will also facilitate lots of bespoke goods designed especially for you or your particular need at a specific time. Of course, 3D printing is for the big kids too. Major multinational corporations are getting in the game and several startups are racing to create the best printers and processes for industrial manufacturing needs. What else is special about 3D printing? Well, because many of these machines are quite flexible, that is, they can print lots of different kinds of things, we may see realignment of traditional manufacturing sectors. Why make only kitchen chairs when you can also make wrenches or even fuel nozzles? Lastly, 3D printing will change the geography of manufacturing. We're already starting to see some of this with companies like 3D Hubs, a manufacturing as a service platform. But because production can now happen close to the consumer and intermediate manufacturing steps are largely taken out of the loop, we can eventually expect different product flows globally. 
the lifetime of a good from the place where the raw materials are extracted to the place where the end users obtain the product will suddenly have a very different path. So why is this industry so transformational that we've decided to make it the subject of our first miniseries? Well, it'll change the who, what, where, and how of manufacturing. The when is starting right now. Our interview with Ben is split into two parts. In this first episode, we use Ben as our technical expert, and he will explain to us the different kinds of additive manufacturing processes that exist, go over some technical terms, and talk to us about the industry in general. It's a bit technical at first, but there are two rewards for listening through to the end of the episode. First, Ben has written a book on 3D printing, a chunk of which is being made available for free to you. Just listen to the episode to get the URL. Second, later in the episode, Ben reveals insights from their latest Future Trends report, which is also available for free. And we dive into a discussion of how 3D printing will change everyone's life. In part two of the interview, which we'll air in a few weeks, we'll talk to Ben about 3D Hubs itself, where he's the director of supply chain. In between, we're going to hear from the founders of four of the most interesting and promising 3D printing startups out there, including Greg Mark of Mark Forged, Nancy Hardwick of Meld Manufacturing, Bob Swartz of Impossible Objects, and Blake Teipel of Sentium. We know that there are others like you who are curious about the way that technologies are changing the economy. So please help us spread the word. Forward this episode or one of your favorite episodes to a friend or a colleague. Post a link to the show on your favorite social media platform. And please do write us a review on iTunes. We need all of your help in building the M4 Edge community. But for now, enjoy the mini series on 3D printing and this episode with Ben Redwood of 3D Hubs. Okay, so shall we start? Yep, let's do it. Ben Redwood of 3D Hubs, thanks for joining the M4 Edge podcast today. Thank you guys very much, Michael and Marco. I'm very excited to be here. We are excited to have you. And one of the things that I really like about this interview that we're doing is that you guys reached out to us. So most of the way that it's worked for me and Marco until now is that either we've known the uh, people involved in the startups we've been interviewing or we've met them through various connections. But uh, very happily, you guys found us, which was a really nice surprise. Yeah, we're a tight-knit community, us 3D uh, printing people. And um, so we're very excited to see you've done some, or interested in doing some work on uh, the industry. And we, we jumped at the chance to be involved. Great. And so, Ben, you are our 3D printing additive manufacturing expert for this mini-series that we're launching. And uh, you're going you're gonna to be the guy that tells us and tells our audience all about uh, how these technologies work. And for sort of part two, we're going to ask you more specifically about how 3D Hubs works. And Ben, Ben, you're a certified expert because you have literally written the book on this. We have, yes. Uh, the irony of the 3D printing company writing the 2D book is not lost in me. You don't get that, don't get it wrong here. But uh, yes, we have uh, a lot of knowledge. We really feel like we're positioned as, a, as an industry leader in, in 3D printing. And so... Uh, in 2017, we sat down and we wrote the book uh, on everything we know about 3D printing and everything we've seen uh, come across our desks over the years and our involvement. And that book is going to be made available through a special landing page on the 3D Hubs 
website to the M4 Edge listeners. So thank you for that. And I think that's kind of a nice, it's a really nice treat for all of us. Great news. The more desks we can get the book on, the more the happier we are. We'll tell you the URL for that downloadable book at the end of this episode. And it'll also be in the show notes. You said it was ironic for you to print it in 2D. Did you actually contemplate doing some sort of art project where you printed the entire book in 3D and you know, <laughs> museum for people to walk through or something? Is that- About as close as we got to that is we have embossed text on the cover. Um, outside <laughs> of that, no, it is very firmly in the 2D world, uh, which funnily enough, was it was a very interesting experience. We published it ourselves under our own um, publishing company, and that, that was an interesting road to go down. Um, that's for sure. But it's something we're very, very proud of, and it's done uh, exceptionally well for us. It far exceeded our expectations. So um, who would have thought uh, when we first sat down that uh, it would really take off like it has? Wonderful. And before we get started with questions about the industry itself, Tell our listeners where you're based, because you're also the first company that we are interviewing that's not in the States. Yeah, of course. So we, uh, um, our headquarters are based in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Um, I bet the listeners thought you were going to say Australia. It was sort of a... a <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'm actually a New Zealander, Michael. New Zealander, oh, sorry, oh, sorry. I don't, I'll hold that bad. against you, but uh, I'll try and move forward pretty quickly. Please do not lump me in the basket with that, keg, with that sorry, country. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> it's kind of like me calling you Canadian, I suppose. <laughs> Um, yeah, so we are, uh, yeah, we were founded in the Netherlands, um, originally in 2015 and we've grown to around 60 people now, but we do have a U.S. based team. Um, so we have remote salespeople, um, and remote customer service people who work for us over in the United States. And, um, the majority of our business on 3D hubs is done through the United States market as well. Got it. Okay. Well, apologies again. (laughs) <laughs> on the other on the other hand ben you should know that i happen to know two more new zealanders so i know all three of you so you should consider me a friend <laughs> for, a, for a country of five million people you, you know a good proportion of us marco so that's very impressive like a census, basically. <laughs> yeah so let's so let's get going why, why don't we start a little bit with the history of 3D printing. One of the things that I've heard, Marco and I have heard from some of our interviews and that we've read is that in many cases, the technology that is employed today, not by all companies, surely, but by a good chunk of them, is actually kind of old technology. So tell us a little bit about the history and what that old technology is. Yeah, so... I suppose where 3D hubs are really experts is the last 10 years. Um, and that's where we've really come in and, and uh, had an impact in the industry and we, we really tried to cash in. Um, but yeah, not many people do know this, that historically 3D printing is actually a very old technology. Um, for born in the 80s, uh, there was a race for a patent between um, an American company and uh, Japanese or French um, for the patenting stereolithography, which is a very well-known and established 3D printing technology now in 2019. Um, And yeah, that was really the birth of 3D printing. But it goes back even before that, um, where there were some scientific novels that were written and based around a machine that could replicate itself, um, where if we ever wanted to colonize another planet, a very topical conversation for us in 2019 as a species, um, that these machines would be taken and they could essentially be set up on another planet or moon and uh, they'd reproduce themselves and they could reproduce other things as well. And so 
going right, that's going right back to uh, to the 50s, 40s, where this concept was kind of born, and it, it didn't take until the 80s for somebody to actually bring it to life. Uh, and then the industry itself really didn't remain, uh, really remained quite stagnant for a long time. Um, the machines were quite expensive. A lot of materials that were being utilized were coming from other industries. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, it just really never took off until around the 2005 to 2010 era where uh, things launched and we kind of saw that hockey stick growth that we're also familiar with now. And it, it became a buzzword in media for about five years there where everyone was talking about how 3D printing is going to change the world. So what was it that changed the things, Ben? What were the technological changes which all of a sudden opened the way for 3D printing to really take off? It was actually around patents. So there were a lot of patents that were protected, um, particularly around one technology, FDM. Um, and these all kind of expired around the same time. And we also there was also a few other technologies that were kind of patent protected. But what really happened was when the, one of these main patents expired, it opened up the industry to kind of start producing their own low cost versions of what had been protected before that. And the result of this was an explosion of desk, desktop 3d printers um, onto the market. A lot similar to the internet bubble boom where everyone wanted to start up an internet company. There was suddenly everyone wanted to start producing a desktop 3d printer or producing a kit set for one. And it was massively adopted by the, uh, by the maker and hobbyist community. Uh, and it was really around that time when that was happening that uh, all, all these printers kind of flooded the market and it became a really something that you could get your hands on for a few thousand dollars and experiment with. And because of that, the word of mouth kicked in um, and we really hit a tipping point where suddenly it was uh, a, a common phrase in, in industry. And before that, if you said it, there, was, there were not too many people, mainly really the specialists who uh, who were speaking about it. And a big part of that was the MakerBot movement, which is very famous, a very famous story in our industry. Um, and, and they played a really huge role in getting 3D printing out to the masses and making this an accessible technology. It's interesting that it went that way. You know, often you think of technology progressing in the opposite direction where it starts, you know, at a place like DARPA and then major research labs. And only at the end does it progress down to the maker or, you know, tinkerer community. So it's interesting that it started really from a grassroots spot here rather than major major corporate labs and things like that yeah you're right the the industrial uh printers so the industrial 3d printers they were always getting adapted and the materials were kind of always getting developed um for the sls production and and some metal printing um was really being they were they were kind of slowly moving along but i think the, the desktop movement brought 3D printing really to the forefront of a lot of people's mind and suddenly a lot of cash started getting injected into the industry as a result of that. So while um, the industrial technologies were kind of laboring along slowly, because of this maker movement, everyone was really interested in 3D printing and they were looking at all the options, not just the desktop options. And this resulted in a lot of big players getting involved in the industry and pouring a lot of cash to really accelerate things quickly. That's interesting. So you've now mentioned two different technologies, one SLS and one stereolithography. And so in, in a second, I'm going to ask you to start explaining what, what those are and what the differences are. And I know those are only two of you know a suite of technologies that are out there. But you also said there's a buzzword. And so I want to ask you a little bit about the semantics here. I know that um, the industry tends to use additive manufacturing or AM 
the rest of us tend to use 3D printing. Is there any, you know, from where you sit, is there any useful distinction between those terms? No, not really. I think um, additive manufacturing is probably becoming more and more mainstream as this entire industry becomes more and more in the uh, becomes more and more relevant in the professional space. Um, so we do find most of the large professional companies we work with use terminology added manufacturing internally, um, but they weren't the early adopters of this. And so 3D printing was kind of uh, what stuck uh, thanks to the media originally. And it's, it's kind of a, it explains quite clearly what's going on uh, 3D printing. And so to the general public, uh, I think 3D printing will hang along around for a long time. Additive manufacturing is certainly uh, the terminology that's used anytime you're talking to anyone in industry though. Right. So stereolithography, uh, tell us what that means. Right, so we'll start from the very start and we'll, we'll go right back. So there's a really a great standard called ISO or ASTM two, uh, 52900. Um, and this was produced in 2015 with the goal of unifying the language across 3D printing because of this explosion of companies that had come onto the market and all the different methods that existed for producing 3D printing. Um, this standard was developed to kind of say, right, let's, have the standardized terminology and everyone uh, everyone can kind of fit into these categories that we'll set up. And now that these are established, uh, this is what we'll use going forward. So they established seven categories. Um, I'll quickly rattle them off, but I, again, we'll go back through these with, for the users. But there's material extrusion, vat polarization, powder bed fusion, material jetting, binder jetting, direct energy deposition, and sheet lamination. Um, and in our book, when we wrote the book at the time in 2017, uh, we really decided uh, to focus on the core five that were the most popular that we were seeing from our experience with the industry. And, and these were the first five. So we didn't write too much about direct energy deposition or sheet lamination, but these are two technologies that are now becoming more and more common. Um, and certainly uh, there's even more that are now available and coming into the market. And no doubt as the standard gets iterated over the next few years, we'll see this list growing and growing and growing. But yeah, really, we really focus on the core five um, and these kind of fit into the category. And this is what we really wrote about in the book. Ben, do you want to um, start taking us through what some of those mean? And then we'll start getting into, you know, if you could explain um, how they, how they work. Yeah, I think that's a good place to start. And uh, and then maybe we'll start getting into you know where they work, what they're used for, because they I know that some have advantages for certain types of applications and are you know have disadvantages for others. So why don't we yep, of course. start with you know what what they actually are? Okay, so let's go with the first one. So material extrusion is by far the most well known and common method of uh, additive manufacturing, and um, it generally goes by the terminology FDM, which stands for fused deposition modeling, um, and this is what everybody who's been exposed to a 3D printer has generally seen. Uh, these are the ones that are in all the offices and workshops around the world. These are the, one, uh, these are the printers that people have in their garage now. Uh, they're very low cost, very simple to use, and uh, in terms of sheer volume, they really dominate the market. What they, one of the reasons they're so successful, and generally 3D printing as an industry has been so successful, is it's quite simple. Uh, it really is often just a case of pressing a button and, and stepping away and letting the machine do everything. The machines are generally quite safe to use um, compared to something like, say, injection molding or CNC machining. Injection molding is a super common manufacturing process where it is what it sounds like. You inject something molten, often metal, into a prefabricated mold and 
thereby you can produce many, many versions of the same thing using that initial design that is embodied in the mold. CNC machining, another very common manufacturing method. CNC stands for computer numerical control. No one ever really calls it that. It's just CNC. And this is automation of um, machining or manufacturing processes. In other words, using a computer to uh, precisely specify um, in the programming language how a thing, how a part or device or whatever should be made. The machines are generally quite safe to use um, compared to something like, say, injection molding or CNC machining. Uh, FDM is particularly at the forefront of that. So it really is the perfect uh, introduction for 3D printing. And how it works is a roll of filament. So this is a thermoplastic. Thermoplastic is simply plastic polymer that's malleable once it's heated. Um, is put into a spool and it's dri- it, in around about two and a half diameter uh, rot, sorry, rot filament. It's pushed through a heated nozzle. And the 3D printer essentially acts like a very precise hot glue gun. It moves around what we call a build plate and deposits plastic where it's needed um, and slowly builds up uh, a part, one part at a time. So similar to you squeezing toothpaste out of a tube or icing a cake, uh, this is essentially how it works. And that plastic cools right away, right away. And as each layer is built, they bond to each other by heating up and connecting. Um, and you can really build up parts using that method. There are some limitations to this technology, but it is uh, the simplicity of it means that it's a fantastic low-cost way to kind of enter the industry. And there is, is there a limit, Ben, on, for example, the kind of materials that can be handled with this specific technology? Yes, good question. So uh, FDM relies on thermoplastics. So thermoplastics are plastics that can be heated up and uh, remelted over and over again. Uh, and this generally means we're focusing on things like PLA, ABS, um, ASA, PETG, all relatively common plastics that we have around us in the world today. Uh, and the benefit of this is they are in abundance thanks to the injection molding industry. Um, and they've been tweaked and adapted to be used, utilized for 3D printing. And as long as it's a thermoplastic, generally it can be 3D printed. Uh, there is a bit of a rule of thumb that the, the greater the mechanical properties and the greater the performance of the, plas- uh, of the thermoplastic, the more difficult it is to print. Um, so if you want a really high-level plastic, like something like Altum, uh, then this requires a really controlled environment to produce, but the parts it produces are incredibly strong. They've got fantastic heat resistance, um, and they can be used for very functional real-world applications. The majority of what we see in the industry is really focused around PLA and ABS, um, and they dominate uh, by far. They're the two most popular in terms of what people are printing with on a day-to-day basis using the FDM technology. Can you talk a little bit about the production time of a production size? I know that that what that's one of the issues with a lot of uh, additive manufacturing generally that it's size limited and the production time for you know the biggest part that these things can print. Yeah, some of the three D printing technologies, FDM and SLA, are actually quite scalable. Um, you just need to have a lot of control over what you're doing. So. If you want really high precision parts, you lose a lot of that as you really scale up. Um, but these can be used to produce, FDM can be used to produce full scale car bumper models and mock ups of entire dashboards and uh, car dashboards and things like this um, without having that exact accuracy. 
at Canals. Generally, the build volume is around uh, 300 millimeters cubed, and this is what the majority of the desktop machines are. Uh, and in terms of build speed, yeah, it moves pretty quickly. Uh, off the top of my head, I don't know a, a cubic centimeter per hour, but I'd say if you wanted to print, print something the size of your fist, you're looking at about two, two to three hours to produce something there. Got it. Okay. What's, what's next on your list? Right. So next we move into the category we call VAT polarization. Um, and this is quite different to FDM. Um, and the two main and most well-known technologies in this category are stereolithography and direct light processing or DLP. And stereolithography goes by the terminology SLA. Um, this is, uh, these two are again, this is the second most common method of 3D printing. And how, what this process does is it uses a photopolymer, a liquid photopolymer. A photopolymer is a polymer that changes structurally when it's exposed to light. Photopolymer. And a laser to cure certain areas of the photopolymer so that they solidify. And it does this one layer at a time. So you have a print bed that's... Uh, got a very thin layer of liquid polymer on it. A laser comes in and solidifies areas in that layer and then it moves, the print bed moves down. And then uh, again, the liquid polymer moves over the surface. The laser comes along and solidifies areas and you just get this continuously layer by layer as the parts built up. Um, a couple of big advantages of this over FDM. Uh, it's much more accurate. So it's used generally for much smaller build, build sizes um, it produces incredibly smooth uh, smooth surfaces on parts, uh, but the downside is it uses thermosets as opposed to thermoplastics. So thermosets can only be used once. Once they're cured or solidified, they can't be remelted down. This is what bowling balls are made of. If you put a bowling ball in the oven, it'll never melt. It'll just start kind of charring and chipping away. Um, that's what these parts use. They're also generally quite UV unstable, um, and they're generally brittle as well. So... For real strength, um, that polymerization typically isn't used uh, if you're really talking about a functional strong bracket or something along these lines. However, it's incredibly common in industries like jewelry uh, where you want these fine details on a part or it now is responsible for producing, I think, 98% of the world's hearing aids um, are now made with that polymerization. So um, it's had a big impact in the dental industry as well. Uh, so that kind of gives you an idea of where this technology, the SLA technology really sits and where its strengths lie. And just to be, to be clear, one of the advantages of the hearing aid and the dental use is the really specific customization you can get. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the main benefit of 3d printing in general is, uh, we're additively creating something um, from nothing up. And so these can be incredibly customized parts. Uh, and when you start putting whole sets of printers all together in a row, you can produce what we call mini factories um, where you can be just be churning out custom parts uh, consistently. And if we talk about the manufacturing industry as a whole, or we talk, or we look at consumers in 2019, this is really what people want now. Uh, they want highly bespoke custom parts that are produced just for them. Um, and so the adoption of industries like the dental law, uh, hearing aid or medical industry with 3D printing, are where everything could be custom and could be a custom fit and could be suited exactly for certain patients. Uh, that's really why it's taken off so much. We know that as we describe the different technologies, this discussion can get a little bit technical but I promise it's worth it 
because it'll help you understand, as it helped us understand, the rest of the discussions we have with the other 3D printing firms. So stick with us. I promise it's worth it. I also promise that in this discussion, we're going to get back to how 3D printing will help transform a wide range of products in our everyday life. But right now, it seems like a pretty good time for a break from some of the technical stuff. And we're going to get a quick update from Ricky Butch. So here's Ricky's reports. Ricky and I are sitting in the cafe of one of the World Bank buildings here in Washington, D.C. It was a nice little reunion for the two of us. Ricky was in for the World Bank's Energy Week, and he was on a panel, and he's going to give us a little bit of an update about uh, what he's up to. Michael, it was definitely nice to, to see you here in Washington. Uh, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this to you and Marco before, but uh, as I'm thinking through the startup, I'm also doing some consulting work for the World Bank, uh, specifically around the energy sector management assistance program and helping countries think through developing distributed energy resources. And for me, it's been a great way not only to stay connected to some of the challenges that fast-growing countries are facing, but also just to network with uh, stakeholders throughout the energy space. And one of the things that I've that I've learned being here is the importance of thinking through not just the end customer's needs, but also the needs and requirements of other stakeholders that can help facilitate the uh, setting up and acceleration of a, of a startup. One of the examples that, that comes to mind is I had a chance to spend some time with some representatives from the IEEE Smart Villages Initiative. I didn't know this before, but IEEE is actually one of the largest professional associations in the world. And the Smart Villages Initiative specifically is meant to help train local entrepreneurs on how to think through the various aspects of of building a distributed energy business in emerging markets. And so they take the idea of training people very seriously. And that was one of the things that actually struck a chord with me because as I think through the concept around my company, a lot of it's really focused around the technology itself and the needs of the end customer, but really there's, there's a need to establish a certain level of, of competency around deploying and operating and maintaining the technology once it takes shape. And that got me thinking there's probably some type of alignment, one, just to build a larger stakeholder map beyond the end customer, beyond those that I immediately deal with uh, as I think through my concepts and incorporate other parties that may have an interest or may have an ability to help accelerate what I'm thinking of doing, um, but also think through what they can offer and how that could potentially amplify some of the value propositions that I'm thinking about, uh, both for those that would be partners for me as well as the end customer. And so I come away from from Energy Week rejuvenated, certainly with a a newfound perspective and, and new information about some of the challenges around deploying distributed energy in in emerging markets. Uh, Certainly a a better appreciation of some of the priorities of the World Bank. And also, I think one of the, the, again, the key takeaways being to really go back and in addition to continue to refine the concept around the technology. The loudest cappuccino maker in the world. (laughs) Continue to refine the technology concept and uh, thinking through the value proposition for the end customers to really begin formulating a much broader stakeholder map and reaching out to those who are not most directly associated with with the venture at the moment and see what how not only can I I can help them but also how what they're doing right now can help accelerate what I'm doing. 
now back to Ben Redwood of 3D Hubs. And here there is a there is a point which is probably worth making, Ben, because one of the criticisms that are raised towards some forms of the 3D printing technology is the idea that some of these machines are seen as almost a bit finicky in the sense that once you have optimized them for a certain part, you should let them run. And if you mess around with them and want to change the settings for a different part, then you have to go through a lengthy resetting process. In the technology you're describing right now, is that true or is it the case instead that these machines can shift to producing very quickly, one after the other, similar parts, but parts which are all different from one another because they are customized for different people. Certainly the second scenario. So, I mean, that is the main strength of 3D printing. Um, Unlike other manufacturing technologies, I mean, again, it also depends on uh, the scale or volume of parts you're producing, but 3D printing really is uh, able to make uh, parts with relatively similar or even sometimes very different geometries uh, over and over again with very little adjustment to the machine required. I think if you went back 10 years uh, and you spoke to some of the FDM uh, printing people uh, who really kicked off the industry, that it was a very different story back then. It was all about tweaking the printer and adjusting by one degree to get it just right and having the perfect material for a certain geometry. Now, as we've seen the uh, industry mature so much, uh, this isn't too much of a problem anymore, and it's certainly probably the biggest strength. It doesn't matter what you want to print or what you want to produce. Uh, the printer will just do the same thing every time, and you can just change the geometry. Excellent. What is number three on the list? Number three is the powder bed fusion uh, category classification. Uh, and this ranges plastics and metals. So this is the first of the 3D printing technologies we've talked about that, that encompasses both um, both materials, so plastic and metal, but uh, the big uh, names in the powder bed fusion industry are SLS, which is selective laser sintering, and MJF, material jet fusion. Um, and oh, actually, that's probably even classified as something else by itself now. Um, but SLS, yeah, in particular, is, is ahead in the powder bed fusion category, and this is a very well known technology. On the metal printing side, uh, we have uh, direct laser sintering, so DMLS. Uh, and selective laser melting, SLM, which is, again, uh, those two technologies are very similar. There's some patent uh, things there that mean that they've got different names, but they essentially all work the same. And how all these technologies work is um, you start with an empty bin, um, and a roller comes and spreads a thin layer of powder across the surface. A laser then comes down and solidifies the areas that you want to be solid, uh, and then the powder drops down one level and uh, sorry the bin drops down one level and another layer of powder is spread across the top and the laser comes along again and the laser binds all the layers together that were underneath um, so you're getting a, a cohesive part uh, and it continues to do this moving spreading a layer of powder solidifying it with the laser and then dropping down one layer height spreading the powder solidifying with the laser dropping down with layer height until we've got our final part um, and the entire part is then encompassed in powder so there's powder that wasn't sintered by the laser all around the part and so when you remove a print from an sls machine you've actually got to get in there with your hands and break away all the power move all the powder away and blow the powder away with compressed air uh, to extract the part um, this has a number of benefits in terms of other technologies we've spoken about so far require something called 
support material where it's impossible to print on thin air. If you have a, if you think of the capital letter T um, and you want to 3D print the letter T, you cannot print the top of the T without first having something to build upon. So support material is built, which is broken away at the end of the printing and it's a very lightweight um, structure that easily breaks off um, so that we can actually do the top of that letter T. Uh, whereas if you're producing this, uh, the capital letter T with the SLS technology, because there's powder fully encompassing the entire letter as it's printed, none of the support material is required. Um, and you could, that means that you really get a consistent surface finish over the entirety of the part. Does that unused powder get reused or, or is it no longer usable? That's one of the biggest problems with the industry uh, for sure is that uh, generally for SLS, it's around 50 to 60% that can be recycled uh, and that's mixed in with new powder. Um, and then, uh, yeah, in terms of sustainability, there's, uh, there's obviously the job of getting rid of that powder and there are plants set up all around the world that kind of take in vast majority of SLS uh, powder and, and attempt to recycle it again. Um, but yeah, then there are some other technologies and I think this is one of the biggest focuses for the SLS industry as a whole right now to figure out how can they shift that percentage to be even higher so that we're getting more value out, out of our powder. Um, and something like MJF, which is developed by um, HP, so that's Material Jet Fusion, which is a similar technology to SLS um, already they're around 80% for recyclability, so they're having a big impact there and really hoping to challenge the SLS uh, industry and their, with their technology. And once, once the part is you know, freed from its un, unused powder, um, it still needs to undergo some finishing, correct? That's one of the issues with, with most of the processes, I understand. Yeah, I mean, for F SL, uh, sorry, for FDM or, or SLA, if you can print with no support material, you just remove your parts from the build platform and they're essentially ready to use straight away. Oh, sorry, for FDM, that's the case. For SLA, because it uses thermosets and photopolymers, parts need to be cured under UV light, um, and that's, that's an extra step in the post-processing. Um, for SLS... The parts removed from the powder and uh, generally compressed air is used or they're put in a big tumbling bin and just tumbled together to, to take off all the excess powder. Um, and then there are a whole range of post-processing options you can do if you want to color the parts. Generally, most powders are white or gray, so you need to move into a, a, a dye station or a painting station afterwards. But um, SLS post-processing can be done at quite a large scale. It, it depends a little bit on the intricacy of the geometry. If parts are likely to break, you might need a little bit more, um, spend a bit more time on the post-processing. But most of the time, they can just all be chucked into a, a tumbler and tumbled together to remove that loose powder, and they're just sprayed with compressed air as they roll around and then usable in, in their final form? There's no additional... Not at all, and that, that's certainly the strength of SLS, actually. So it uses uh, thermoplastics like FDM, but it uses nylons, um, and nylons are traditionally very strong. They have good chemical resistance. They generally have good heat um, heat deflection property. Uh, sorry, heat property, temperature property, uh, thermal properties. We'll get there eventually. Um, and yeah, that means that SLS is actually used to produce very functional parts. So a lot of the automotive industry uh, and the aerospace industry have really capitalized on the SLS um, technology to produce strong functional nylon parts that are generally quite homogeneous compared to the other 3D printing technologies, which have some anisotropicity. 
which means each of the layers means they're much stronger in one direction compared to the others. So they can kind of break away. Oh, Marco and I easily. both knew what that meant, um, right? That's, that's, that's in our Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I quickly thought I'd slip that word in and just buff over. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, essentially one of the limitations of 3D printing is because we're producing parts with a layer-by-layer process and all the part, all technologies, no matter what we're talking about, use this similar layer-by-layer process. Um, the bonding between layers um, is essential and um, yeah, it basically inherently parts are stronger in one as opposed to another. And this is just one of the problems uh, with the industry, with, with additive manufacturing. Um, and so the goal with all the technologies and as the printers are adapting and becoming a lot better over the years is to remove this as an issue. And, and there are a lot of ways we can do this, but SLS in particular is one of the uh, technologies that's particularly good at ensuring uh, you get a relatively cohesive and homogeneous part that doesn't break uh, across the layer lines. And that's just the nature of the laser and the powder and how it all works. Okay, so the next technology we'll talk about is material jetting. And material jetting is essentially exactly how your 2D printer works, um, but it does this in 3D. So it deposits a photopolymer as well on, on, a, on the build plate and it is cured instantly by a UV light. Uh, and then it just the build plate drops down one level and it deposits another level, a layer of photopolymer ink uh, that's cured by light and it does this over and over again. So you think just how you print a page of out of your printer, it does this on a scale um, over and over and over again to just build up the ink layers so that you're, you, in the end you are left with a 3D printed or a 3D part. Um, so generally one of the easier 3D printing technologies to get your head around. Um, this, again, uses photopolymers, which are thermosets, so similar to SLA. Uh, parts can't be remelted down. Um, and reused uh, and it has all the same material limitations of SLA so um, some issues with UV brittle parts um, not not very good strength uh, and these are all really where the developments are in 3D printing how can each of these industries where they each of these printing technologies where they have their weaknesses what can we do on a technology and material basis to to eliminate these and, and bring them forwards this is really where the exciting stuff's going on in 3D printing so material jetting, um, again, like SLA, produces very smooth parts. Uh, it's the technology you would use if you wanted an injection light, injection mold-like part. So often we see people producing low-volume material jetting on 3D hubs before committing to using 3D hubs for their injection molding order as well. And that means they can print their parts, have them in their hands, have a really good idea about what the final design will look like uh, out of an injection molding machine, take it to their clients and show them this is what the final part will be before they commit to producing the 10,000, 100,000, $1 million run in injection molding. Um, the other big benefit of material jetting is it deposits two materials. Um, you have your final part material as well as a, um, a support material which is fully soluble so it can be put into a solution afterwards and cleaned off um, and that means that we have none of the contact of areas of support that they can all be cleaned and removed so as opposed to FDM or SLA I spoke about earlier where it mechanically needs to be broken away and the surface really needs to be post-processed and sanded down so you can't see where it was 
um, Material Jetting really offers the soluble support. Um, so you get a, a cohesive finish over the entire surface and a consistent finish, sorry, um, over the entire part. Uh, so it's really for aesthetic use and aesthetic models, um, and it can produce some fantastic parts. It can also do full color. Um, so, yeah, you can get parts straight out of the machine there that are, that are very, very impressive. So what industries is it being used in? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of product design. Uh, we see material jetting being used. Uh, as the parts and materials continue to become more consistent uh, and, and better in terms of mechanical properties, it's been adopted more and more over all, all industries. But really from a product design, um, product development point of view, we want to have an idea of what your final million parts are going to look like once they've gone through the injection mold machine. Uh, this is really where that sits. It produces a really fantastic glossy finish and it really is used for kind of wowing clients. And a lot of cool models uh, where uh, surgeons want to practice um, on an organ or learn more about an organ before they go in and operate on a, on a patient. So they'll use a 3D scan of that patient's organ. They'll print it with material jetting and then they'll practice how they'll maybe need to find an entry point or where there might be difficult areas for the surgery. So um, from that use, it's really cool. But again, these aren't so much functional applications. They're really aesthetic and form applications. That's interesting because one of the things we've heard consistently from the folks we've interviewed and that, you know, we've seen messaged is that the industry is moving from using 3D printing as prototype technology and demo technology to full-scale production technology. But you're saying that the material jetting niche really is in in models and in, and in prototyping. Yeah, that's not to say there, there are a raft of new technologies that are coming out all the time. and uh, Sorry, materials that are coming out all the time where it has the, the mechanical properties getting better and better. It's really one of the advantages as well of material jetting is generally the build plates are quite large and you can produce a lot of models in a single print uh, right across the entire build plate. Um, and they can, in some instances, have two separate materials so you can have a flexible material within a solid material so you can actually then start doing hinges or something that might have over molding like a rubber casing on your remote control or the buttons on your remote can be printed at the same time as the solid part of the remote so there are all these really cool uh cool advantages of material jetting but in terms of actual pure part functionality because of its dependence on because of its dependence on thermosets and on the uh, photopolymers that it uses uh, it's generally not the functional material and, and the SLA, uh, SLS and FDM are really the big ones that are making the most noise in that industry right now in terms of producing functional parts at scale. It's an interesting observation. Maybe at some point uh, later in the podcast, we can take stock of the different advantages and trade-offs of different techniques, right? Because you've just mentioned, Ben, the possibility of mixing different materials within the same process. Uh, then there are advantages related to speed, to minimizing the post-processing, to the robustness of the parts. So it would be interesting once we've run through the different technologies, maybe to take stock of the different strong points, the different elements of strengths and weaknesses and how relevant they are across different industries. Yeah, that's a really good idea. I think similar to almost all, let's let's take the car industry, for example. Um, 
each car, there's not one car for every single application. So people also have their preference on what type of car they want. And if you want to go off road, you're probably not going to take a Tesla, but if you want to have a better impact on the environment and save petrol, then you might buy a Tesla and not buy some big diesel chugging SUV. So, uh, this is this industry is exactly the same. Each of these technologies has their strengths and weaknesses, and all of them are popular, and all of them are being used on a day-to-day basis. Uh, they've all just found their spot where they can have the biggest impact and where they can be the most disruptive. And in fact, the automotive industry is using 3D printing uh, as sort of a... I, I, they're leading other industries in their use of 3D printing. Is that right? Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, that's certainly what we see in the rest of uh, the industry sees. I mean, around 70, 75% of automotive companies in the US and Germany now have 3D printed parts in their final products. Um, and so this is we, we expect that number to just keep going up and up. And we also expect the number of parts that are 3D printed in the average car to increase as well. Huh. So there's another technology on your list, yes? Yes, so binder jetting is a technology that uses powder, similar to uh, powder bed fusion. Um, However, it uses a binding agent as opposed to a laser to make the particles in the powder or the sand adhere together. Um, This means that it has no heat associated with the technology, which is a big advantage because heat brings a raft of complications uh, when you're talking about um, parts cooling at different rates and getting deflections or warping. Um, binder jetting has none of these issues. It's used uh, with generally sand or gypsum as well as some metal powders, uh, aluminium, titanium. Uh, and basically all we have is very similar to SLS, a layer of powder or sand spread across a build plate surface. And then a print head comes along and deposits a binding agent, essentially a glue, uh, in the areas where you want the parts to be solid, that solidifies, and then it spreads another layer of powder and pr- uh, puts the binding agent down again and again and builds up parts. Again, like SLS, this means the final parts are fully encompassed in uh, the original build material, and they need to, it can, need to be taken out, and the build material needs to be ta- blown away. Um, we see binder jetting used a lot in casting, so sand casting. It can produce very complex molds for sand casting, Um, and these are traditionally very difficult to make. And so at a very low cost, it can print in sand, uh, and you can use that for casting engine blocks and things like this. It's also used, as I said, in the metal production of metal parts. So originally the uh, material, uh, the uh, powder version of the material will come out of the final print, and it'll be uh, very, it won't be strong at all because it's just held together by glue. Uh, It'll be put into an oven, that glue will be melted out, and then it'll be sintered. So, all the, all the uh, powder will kind of heat right up and join together and fuse together, create a really strong, cohesive part at the end as well. Um, so binder jetting is really quite, being quite disruptive at the moment in the, uh, in the metal printing industry, and I'd certainly say it's one of the ones to watch uh, that's, that's really starting to get a foothold in metal printing, which is the buzzword and, and the big thing that people are really excited about uh, on the 3D printing side at the moment. And the two you're not going to, going to talk about again can you remind us what they are yeah so so that's direct energy deposition and this essentially uses lasers um, or thermal energy to to fuse material together and the material is forced out similar to welding um, and deposited as it moves so uh, essentially you're just moving a a a print head around and shooting out a material that's then fused with a laser or with heat um, and it just builds the parts up one layer at a time. So if any of your, you or your listeners have experience with welding or MIG welding in particular, it kind of acts like that. And then there's the laser involved. 
Um, and then the final technology is sheet lamination. And uh, this is a really cool technology. It's quite commonly used for paper, but where it's really adapting now is uh, for use with metals. And it lays down a sheet of metal or paper and then uh, fuses an area with a laser uh, and then the so that, that solidifies that area and then it lays down the build plate moves down, it lays down another layer of paper or material and then fuses that area and it does it over and over again, just building up sheets. And at the end, um, you take away all the excess material off the side and you're left with your final part in the middle. And now before we move on to anything else, the most important question, Ben, among these technologies, once we finally start colonizing other planets, which one is the leading candidate for taking on the pioneering self-replicating I, I, I was wondering how come at the episode of the podcast you didn't go into a sci-fi question mark. You were really yeah, good. That's impressive. Very good question, Marco. I mean, I think it has to be FDM. So the very first technology I talked about, which is in the material extrusion group, where um, the print head just moves around like a really precise hot glue gun. It's a very simple technology to use. You can use a large range of materials. Um, it's also the technology that's used for printing things like food or biomatter in a lot of the instances. Um, and yeah, I just think that the ease of this, uh, of how it can be adapted, and it's a very kind of press a button and step away technology. This is the one I'd be taking to Mars with me on Elon's spaceship. <laughs> awesome. Ben, we, you know, in addition to the book describing the different technologies that you, have, you guys have put out, you've also put out a new book on your expectations of trends in the industry for 2019. So can you tell us a little bit about what you see? Correct. Yeah. So uh, this is one of our legacy things we're very proud of at 3D Hubs. Back when we first launched, we had the idea that it would be really cool to see what our customers are ordering and what uh, materials are popular, what printers are popular, where geographically uh, is 3D printing really being adopted. And so every quarter since I think 2016, we've, we've written a trend report and these can all be looked up online um, by any of your listeners to really showcase what do we see at 3D Hubs. And as of 2018, we've produced over 2 million parts. So we're really getting a fantastic data set here to have a really good idea about what's happened and what trends have shifted. Now, this year, we've taken a very different approach to our trend report. We much, we much more view ourselves now as a manufacturing company as opposed to just a 3D printing company. And so we've taken a more holistic look at the industry and how does 3D printing being adopted in terms of all of manufacturing and what are the kind of areas where it's really disrupting in other industries like automotive, as we've spoken about, or aerospace or medical, and what are these industries doing and what are they actually taking on board and what are their successes and failures and what kind of growth can we expect to see. So, again, as I said before, around 75% of automotive companies in the US or Germany have 3D printed parts in their cars. Uh, we're predicting huge growth in 3D printing, so a forecast of around 23.5% um, in terms of the industry itself over the next five years. And around 70% of uh, online global 3D printing demand we've found comes from three main industry or three main company, uh, countries. Sorry. So the US, UK, and Germany are really leading the way in terms of the adaption of 3D printing. And the, these are just some of the high-level facts that we have in our trend report, but we really dive into what's the reasoning behind each of these and what's going on. And uh, this is something we're going to release, hopefully in line with the, the launch of the podcast when, you, when this goes live. Um, so all your users will be able to easily access it on our website. That's fantastic. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you think that um, 
UK, US, and Germany are the leading countries and why places like, um, you know, Japan, France, Korea, Australia, other OECD nations um, aren't in those top spots? Yeah, good question. I think for us, we really see a lot of adoption in California and New York. Um, We see a lot of our customers are based there. Um, And this could align quite nicely with the, uh, the, the kind of tech startup scene that exists in these two locations. So, um, from a North America point of view, I think that that, that kind of explains for that. Uh, Germany, uh, along with the Netherlands, uh, has got a long history in 3D printing um, and has been responsible for a lot of the technologies that have launched and a lot of the 3D printing companies that exist. And so yeah, I think uh, these uh, that, that's the reason that Germany's really kicked off. And then the UK is just a, bit, is a big manufacturing market as well. And uh, when you say, why, why hasn't Japan adopted this? Yeah, I, I actually don't know the answer to that question. I find it quite interesting. They, they account for around 9% of the Asia, whole Asia-Pacific re, um, region um, of 3D printing distribution. And so, I don't know, maybe watch this space. But we're talking more and more to Japanese manufacturers and Japanese um, suppliers who are wanting to join our network now. So maybe this is something that's about to explode over there. And on this note, Ben, have you seen anything which seems to be either a particular pull, a particular motivator for companies to adopt 3D printing faster or anything which turns out to be <clears throat> a specific difficulty or headwind which make, which discourages them from going that route? Yeah, I mean, my favorite story, to go back to what I spoke about earlier, is um, ear, ear implants, so sorry, hearing aids. Um, I think this is just an industry which needed a higher level of customization. There were facts like six out of 10 hearing aids were taken back um, to be remolded or to be re-engineered based to discomfort from users. Um, And now you've got a highly, now you can have highly customized parts produced at a very low cost using 3D printing and entire print farms with uh, hundreds of 3D printers all connected together. Um, and this kind of really custom bespoke type of manufacturing really aligns with the medical industry and hearing aids. And I think that's one of the, the real testimonies and, and success stories of the industry. And like I said, 98, I think maybe even 99% of all hearing aids are now produced with 3D printing. So this is this really paints a picture of why this industry was successful. But we're also seeing a lot of maturing in the 3D printing industry. So if you go back five, 10 years, it still was quite a makery scene um, in general. And we've seen the printers come a long way. We've seen the materials come a long way. And because of that, over the last one, two years, there's been much greater adoption um, into the industry and a lot more investment as well. Uh, And I think this will just continue to grow even faster and faster and faster. And if people are seeing that this is a really viable technology to not take over our traditional methods of manufacture, but to align and disrupt certain areas, um, it's just going to keep exploding. Uh, there, there was always the hype that by 2020, we'd be driving around in 3D printed cars and eating 3D printed, printed hamburgers. Um, we're not quite there yet, but uh, in terms of the industrial adoption, I've certainly seen this take off within the last 12 months. And we at 3D Hubs really feel like we're at the forefront of that. You know, so you mentioned hamburgers and cars. We know when we mentioned this earlier that the automotive industry is really leading in its utilization of additive. We know that um, the air and, sp- and space industry as well, aerospace industry as well, uh, is also really ahead of the game. Um, what's next from sort of a, a major industrial 
sector? You know, do we see this? I know that actually, you know, for some kinds of construction projects, there have been some experimentation with, you know, really large scale kinds of kinds of printers. Um, what's next? Do we see this in, you know, durable goods? Where Where is the next logical place that this would begin to take off? I mean, if you ask me, I'd say consumers. Uh, I really think that as consumers today, we want customized things. I think over the last 20 years, uh, consumers are all about the lowest possible cost and just get it to me. And um, they're very, very price conscious, not too uh, carbon footprint conscious as a society. Um, And now I think that's changing. People want one-offs. People want things that are custom and people are willing to pay a bit more for that. And they're also a bit more aware about where their products are coming from. And 3D printing is all about uh, kind of the local manufacturing aspect. It's about getting parts made um, that are completely custom right next door and or even in your own house with your own 3D printer. So I think there's a lot of uh, opportunity in the consumer market and I can just see a whole bunch of new industries who already have a good foothold in the consumer industry taking advantage of this. Everything from razors to shoes to to, all these types of different things. And imagine being able to scan your foot and then have your 3d printer print insoles for your foot. So you have the most comfortable footwear or um, let's say you're a left-handed person who has a lot of difficulty finding a left-handed tool. You could easily just go on print it in your printer in your house so that the left-handed tool is right there for you straight away. These, these are the kind of things that I think are exciting from, from an adoption point of view. And, Fortunately, we'll be driven forwards financially by the automotive and aerospace market and the medical markets really adopting this more and more um, and pouring more and more cash into it. And I think in the long run, us as consumers will be the people that will benefit from this. And to what extent uh, do you think that the raw materials are going to be a constraint? Because there is something very interesting here. You talked about uh, the different materials which are best suited to the different technologies. We also know that there is an interesting uh, interrelation synergy between material science uh, coming up with new materials, new powders, and 3D printing. And I'm wondering, once 3D printing starts scaling, is the availability of different materials going to be a binding constraint that skews the trends towards certain technologies over others? I think it's going the other way. We're just seeing an abundance of materials come onto the market uh, every week. Uh, There's a new material for a highly specific application. um, And this just means that the industry is developing things for everyone. So no matter what you are doing and whether you think there's a 3D printing technology that's probably a material that's not out there, it's highly likely there is whether you want thermal properties, whether you want strength, whether you want um, biocompatibility, there are hundreds, thousands of materials now that really exist um, on the 3D printing market that can be used for every known application. And this is just going to keep carrying on forever. Um, I think there'll be a lot more adoption of things like composites in 3D printing. So using two materials together um, and also getting a bit smarter about how we produce parts and the geometry we produce parts and how uh, materials actually printed to get different properties out. So um, honeycomb structures and these type of things uh, will really be adopted to, to utilize what is a base material, but it'll be the geometry that gives you the performance of the part. So you're the director of supply chain. And so maybe you could help answer this question that I've, I've asked a few people and I, I still feel like I'm not, I'm not, uh, understanding how this might work, and it ties to Marco's question on materials. So, 
in a future where additive manufacturing is super prevalent, it's everywhere, um, we still obviously need to get the raw materials out of the ground from somewhere. Um, and they need to be transported to wherever the, wherever the printer is, which is presumably close to the consumer rather than at some intermediate location. What yeah. happens to the current set of intermediate goods assemblers, all of particularly South Asian countries um, where, you know, many of the intermediate goods are now put together? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a good question. I mean, our research has shown, and there's a lot of research about this, that around 30% of all products that are produced end up in landfill anyway without even getting picked up by a consumer. And there's huge inventory storage costs. Uh, there, there are a lot of downsides to the way we manufacture parts today. So we'll probably be getting a bit smarter there. Raw materials, I think, is something uh, that the 3D printing industry needs to be pretty aware of. But there's a lot of cool companies that are doing efforts in recyclability. Uh, my favorite example right now, which is really been in the news a lot lately is um on the nasa have a 3d printer in the international space station they also have a uh, recycling machine up there for whatever's produced with a 3d printer so the astronauts recently produced a ratchet up in space um, once they were done with it they put it into the recycling machine it just broke down the filament and uh, they could just print the next tool that they needed when it came up and it could be fully custom as well so i think this is the kind of approach we need to take with 3d printing and aligning it with recyclable recyclability and reusability um, from that angle is, is what i find really interesting and, and this is really prevalent in fdm printing at the moment in particular that nasa example is about as close to sci-fi as you're going to get right i mean that's amazing yeah, how cool is that? And they can have a fully functional tool in a couple of hours, use it, and then recycle it and produce the next tool they need. And so there's no need to constantly be sending materials up. Um, you just need one set of materials. I'm sure there's a limit to how many times you can recycle over and again without some degradation of the material properties. But uh, yeah, that, these are the kind of things that I find really exciting. And NASA will do it first, and then hopefully in a decade's time, it'll just be commonplace for everyone else. And presumably it's drawing its power from the solar panels on the space station, right? So. Yeah, so I mean, you've got the, you've got a fully closed loop there, which I really like. That's pretty amazing. Ben, I wanted to switch gears to to a question that I think will take us closer to the three D hubs story and business model. Now that companies are getting more interested, finding more applications for three D printing, realizing what the power of the technology is, how do you see the adoption taking place? Do companies tend to want to buy the machines or choose the right application, the right machine for their purposes? buy the machines and have them in-house? Do they prefer to start relying on external providers, third-party providers, and so have printing on demand? What trends do you see there? Yeah, very good question. I mean, if you went and the most common question I always get asked at any conference I present at is always, uh, when's the industrial industry going to start accepting us and when are we going to finally take over the world and when is all this going to happen? Um, and yeah, I think it's just going to take time. I think it will have a 3d printing lab. It's, it's really a space in an in industry that it fits in and it's disrupted and it's going to take a slice out of all these traditional manufacturing technologies, but everything will still have its place. It's never going to compete with injection molding, making hundreds of millions of parts a year. It's never going to compete with the real accuracy of functional aluminum parts produced by something like CNC machining and this really nice surface finishes there. So, uh, but it will come in and it'll take slice of those industries and, and 
um, have a spot that, that it's successful in. Your question about do I think everyone will kind of have a 3D printer or will they be looking at other solutions? Well, that's what we're banking on as 3D Hubs as a company. We think distributed manufacturing is the future of the entire manufacturing industry, irrelevant of whether it's 3D printing or CNC machining or injection molding. Um, and so, yeah, what we truly believe is there's going to be less of people buying these technologies and printers themselves and more turning to uh, online solutions like 3D hubs to find someone who can get the parts manufactured for them locally. Uh, the the upside to 3D printing is um, for a few thousand dollars, you can have a 3D printer. If you want to buy a CNC machine, you've got to hire uh, some very clever engineers to run it for you and put down a few hundred thousand dollars as well at the same time. Injection molding, a whole nother level upon that. Um, so this is the accessibility. We work with a lot of architects who have 3D printers in their offices and they've, they're using it for producing models and these types of things. So, yeah, I think it really has its place. And while it is disruptive, it's not going to take over. And I think the industry is pretty aware of that. But it also, we want to get as much of the slice of the pie as we possibly can. So that's what's driving the innovation and growth there. This seems like a pretty good place to stop for now. We're going to pick it up with Ben to talk more about 3D Hubs specifically and its place in the 3D printing industry. Before we do that, though, we have four other episodes on 3D printing with four really fantastic firms. We're going to hear from Mark Forged, Meld Manufacturing, Essentium, and Impossible Objects, all cool technologies, each with a different twist, all really great interviews with the founders. Uh, Please stay tuned. We're going to have those for you coming up in short order. So check them out and please pass them on. Next, we can't say it enough. Please write us a review on iTunes. Help us spread the word. And finally, as promised, URLs for the free resources from 3D Hubs. If you go to 3dhubs.com, that's the number three, then Hub or dhubs.com, 3dhubs.com, slash podcast, slash M4Edge, uh, you will get two chapters of the 3D printing handbook written by Ben and a couple of his colleagues at 3D Hubs. Uh, so please check that out. It's a great resource. Also from the 3D Hub site, uh, 3dhubs.com, slash get, slash trends, you can get uh, 3D printing trends 2019, get the Q1 2019 report. Both of those are free, the uh, two chapters of the book and the Q1 2019 trends. Both great and a present from the folks at 3D Hubs for M4Edge listeners. And as always, thanks for being curious.